Fine Woodworking's holiday sale officially starts tomorrow, November 9th. Head over to thetautonstore.com to save up to 80% on new and classic titles, including the 2017 Fine Woodworking Archive and the Complete Illustrated Guide to Woodworking, available in USB format for the first time. Plus, save 20% on your order with the code GIFT20, G-I-F-T-2-0. Now for a web producer's note. On this episode, we had an interview with Tim Coleman, and unfortunately, we did not have the greatest Skype connection. It's a little difficult to listen to, but if you can work your way through it, the information is phenomenal, and you're going to learn a lot. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking's bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host, Tom McKenna, and with me this week are Mike Pekovich hey guys. and Matt Kenny. Hello, everyone. Uh, behind the camera, as always, are Ben Strano Hello. and hey, Jeff Rose. Hey. Howdy, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Haven't seen you in a while. We have a... <laughs> We have a. Uh, He's always here. <laughs> I don't know why you haven't seen him. <laughs> I missed the. I missed the last one. I was uh, in Nashville. <laughs> I was in Nashville, um, at a honky tonk. We have uh, a packed show today, so we're going to jump right to the questions. And the first one comes from Andrew. And Andrew says, I'm looking to build a large outfeed table for my table saw with plenty of storage for jigs, air compressor tools, etc. I would like to have this outfit table be mobile, but I need to find a solution to help level the outfit table to the table saw. Any suggestions? I'm sure we have lots. Yeah. Who's going to go first? Well, okay. So it's mobile. <laughs> that means you got it on wheels. Yeah. A yeah. um, couple things. Number one, it doesn't have to be dead, dead flat to your table saw. So if anything, kick it down like an eighth of an inch yeah. or even a quarter of an inch. It's going to support the stock as it comes out without a problem, and you don't have to worry about it. You do probably want it fairly coplanar, meaning you don't want it low at the table, but then have it sort of raise up and right. lift the stock yeah. as it as it exits. I would do this. I would get it in position. Hopefully, your table saw isn't mobile, too. That's okay if it is. So let's say your table saw is mobile. Put it in one place. Put some tape on the ground so you can roll it right to that spot. Get your outfeed table where it needs to go, and then somehow get it shimmed up or leveled to where when it's in that specific space, it's where you want it. And then just make sure you roll it back into that spot every time and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Or don't make your outfit table mobile at all and don't make your table saw mobile. <laughs> I know that's hard. I mean, for most people, for a lot of people, that isn't an option, but it is the best solution. Yes. Yeah. Get it in there, get it locked in place, get it leveled up to where you want it, and just don't move it. Yeah. Yeah, coplanar is more important than level. I yeah. all the, all of my shops since I moved to Connecticut have been in garages that serve double duty as uh, ski jump uh, <laughs> takeoffs. <laughs> it would you know, and I never tried to level anything because yeah. it was just too difficult. So yeah. um, I think what I would do if I were gonna make it mobile is I would make it the same way that I made my router table, which is it's on a mobile base, and the bottom of it is like, uh, you know, there's a cabinet, and it has your drawers or your doors or whatever you're doing there. Right. And then on top of the cabinet, I would build a little, uh, I would build a wooden frame, and then on top of that frame, I would put uh, threaded doodahs in the four corners. Okay. And that would attach to the top, and then you could just level the top without and still keep it mobile. Oh, that's a good solution. But the leveling the top is independent of it being mobile. So, uh, oddly, that's one of. The, I think when it comes to woodworking problems, there's people try to solve them with uh, and keep everything together. And really, what this question is, there's two questions here. You know, it's really two things. I want to have a mobile base. I want to have something that's level with the top. But the solution doesn't have to be both involve both the mobility and the leveling, right? Mm-hmm. If you separate yeah. those two things out and make them two separate independent things, it becomes a lot easier to solve the problem. Oh. Yeah. See, I, I think a lot of people, when they th- approach woodworking problems, they don't realize that, oh, I can separate out these different functions or purposes, and then that makes everything a lot easier. You know, it's like when I do uh, cut boxes – miters for boxes and I want you want it to everything to be square that's why I cut things to length first and then miter them because that's two 
separate operations. Hmm. And if you, it makes it easier to do if you separate them out. Nice. I like that. So separate. Mm-hmm. We need a source for doodads. What are those things called? <laughs> it was, it was, it was doodads. Doodads. You know, something like that. Yeah. Some kind of leveler in between the frame and the, and the top. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had a um, <clears throat> this kind of weird table that I built <laughs> as an outfeed table, and I had a roller a roller on it. And um, because my table saw is also on a mobile base because of my space, um, I did away with that outfeed table because it just – once I moved the table sides, so moved the outfeed table, but I still need something like this. I need some sort of outfeed support. Right, right. now, I'm just using a roller, a roller um, outfeed roller, which is working fine because I don't do as much ripping on my table saw as I used to. So I don't have those long pieces coming off the the back end um, as I used to. I do most of my ripping now. <clears throat> excuse me on the uh, the bandsaw, but. Uh, the one thing I, I would say for him is to, if he has a sled on his table, so you have to account for those, the little tracks, the T tracks yeah. coming off. So you know, keeping it low is, you know, a sound idea to keep that clearance so you can push the sled all the way through without hitting the hitting the the top of the outfit table. I've seen outfit tables that are that low, and to me, that's too too low. low. I just bite the bullet and just route the slots yeah. there. Every time I move my outfit table, I have to like. Plug them and reroute them, or yeah, it doesn't have to be perfect, a perfectly sized slot. I'd, yeah, anyway, so you can make it oversized and get in there. Yeah, I mean that's a good idea because really, like my quote-unquote outfeed table, it functions as an outfeed table, maybe like two percent of the time. The rest, it's a second bench, it's an mm-hmm. assembly table, it's a finishing yeah. table, it's just holding a bunch of junk that I have to move out of the way. On the rare occasions, I actually rip something long <laughs> enough to get onto the outfeed table. So, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I can dream about a fixed uh, table saw and outfeed table, but I have a, a lolly column kind of right in mm. the middle of my room, and it's hard to, it's really hard to work around yeah. those those things um, in the space that I have, which is very rectangular. But uh, all good stuff. Yeah, that's cool. So let's get to uh, our next question. This one comes from Terry. Put my peepers on. And Terry says, I'm having a real problem with bandsaw drift. I own a 12-inch bandsaw. I've tried everything to get this saw to cut straight. Right when I get it just right and use a practice piece, it cuts great. Then when I try cutting the project, it drifts off the cut and then straightens out and cuts at the wrong dimension. I use quarter-inch 4TPI skip and a half-inch 4TPI resaw blade, and it happens on every blade. And the blades are new, not dull. The guys are horrible. Hard to set, but I think I have them set correctly. Can you help? Hmm. Well, <laughs> so uh, one, the half-inch blade, right? You'd agree is probably it's, too much yeah. for this bl- uh, for twelve-inch wheels. For yeah, twelve-inch bandsaw, the frame yeah. is just not heavy enough to. It's not made for that. To tension it properly, I right? Think. So you might, for resawing and straight sawing, go down to something like a three-quarter. I mean, a three-eighths. Yeah, a three-eighths-inch blade. Um, I would so there's I can think of two solutions off the top of my head. One or two explanations. One of the explanations is is that, and this is going to sound kind of jerky, but contrary to your beliefs, you are not setting the bandsaw up properly. That there is something there's something wrong. There's something wrong in your setup process. It says that the guides are crummy, so it could just simply be that the guides. Uh, are not set up properly and maybe can't be set up properly. Or they, or they lose their setting. Or they lose their setting. I had uh, some guides once that you, I would get them set up, and then when you lock, down, lock them in place, the screw and the pressure applied to it would cant them mm-hmm. uh, cattywampus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was a pain in the neck to get those set up right. You need to do that. You yeah, need, you need to do that to fix the cattywampus. <laughs> so they're not cattywampus or wonky. Um, yeah. So I I think that's a distinct possibility that he's it's actually not set up correctly. Sure. Yeah. Right. Uh, the other thing could just be it's a bad saw. A, you, it's a bad saw. You need a new saw. It's sometimes saws are you know you get a tool and it's just it's a tool bomb. Yeah. I mean, could be even that the wheels are not coplanar. You know, top and bottom. Well, I'm going I'm to give him the benefit of the doubt to where that, he was able to wrangle this thing into a certain set up to where you can take a test piece and cut a straight cut. But it kind of leads to your second 
gambit there that maybe, you know, it's not you, it's the saw in that, say your chest piece is just a three-quarter inch thick piece of scrap wood and it's cut nice and straight. Now you're going to resaw something that's maybe three inches thick. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're putting a lot more pressure on the blade. And if you have sort of an undersized guide post on the saw that wants to flex back or maybe the bearings aren't fully in contact with the back of the blade, anytime the, the blade is not supported in the back and it... It instead of flexing straight back, it'll it's it'll, called barreling. Yeah. yeah, it will sort of as it goes back, it will go to one side or, or the, the other. other. So yeah. that sounds like what's happening. Where your setup piece is great, your next piece it starts to wander and then sort of refine straight, which means you know as it flexes out, it's going to be sort of a changing curve. But then once it <laughs> reaches like full flex, you know now yeah. all of a sudden it's cutting at a different angle. Yeah, and related to that, here's another distinct possibility, which I forgot about, but we had discussed before, is I have seen bandsaws that when you, if he's setting them, uh, he might have, let's say he's setting it with a three-quarter inch thick piece of stock, and he sets it and it works fine, but then he's going to resaw something that's two or three or four inches, right? Mm -hmm. And he has to raise the guide post. Mm -hmm. If the guide post does not go perfectly straight up and down... It, when you raise it up, let's say, it's going to – it could put twist into the blade, yeah. a little bit of twist. It could do all kinds of things to the blade that would lead it to deflect mm-hmm. or barrel uh, during the cut. Um, but also I've noticed like on my own bandsaw – and this is usually an indication of a dull blade. But um, if you start the cut and it pops out or in a little bit and then after you are cutting, it moves – back Mm -hmm. that you know that i've seen that happen as well and it kind of just kind of jumps out a little and then starts to cut Hmm. and uh but that i usually associate that with a dull blade so okay um the other thing with the blade is get the fence out of the way draw a straight line on the board and just try to freehand that straight line if the blade tends to kind of wobble right and left and you do it this continuous steer right and left to try to track the line that's the sign of a dull blade as well. Mm-hmm. A blade, it should be able to track a line really easily, really accurately. Definitely, yeah. Um, and maybe a 12-inch bandsaw. Maybe if you're trying to resaw, you're just asking it to do, to do. something yeah. it, it's not really designed to do. Probably, yeah. I bet it handles curves and flat stock really well. Maybe keep a quarter-inch blade on there. Mm-hmm. And if you upgrade to a, a bigger saw later, I don't know if you got room for it. Keep this thing around with a skinny old blade on there and put maybe a half-inch blade on the bigger guy. Um, dedicated for everything to except for your really scrolly cuts and have this thing around. Yeah. yeah. Get a 20-inch bandsaw. <laughs> With a 20-inch blade. <laughs> With a 1-inch blade, carbide tip blade on it, you'll be set. Be yeah. Golden. <laughs> Just make sure, yeah, make sure it has good guides. <laughs> well, Michael Fortune has done some great articles on uh, bandsaw setup that maybe um, Terry can check out. Um, maybe Ben can post some of them. I think... Uh, he did one on resawing, but he just did a bunch of other basic setup on. on he did uh, one. Was it like five <clears throat> tips for bandsaw setup or yeah, something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So, um, another good resource to kind of troubleshoot what you're doing. Okay, let's move on to uh, a special guest. This uh, this episode, we uh, we're going to talk to Tim Coleman, eminent furniture maker and designer up in uh, Shelburne, Massachusetts, and a member of the New Hampshire Furniture Masters is with us on Skype. Hi, Tim. Good morning, all. Hey, Tim. <laughs> we have, I don't know if you've ever met uh, Matt Kenny and, or Mike Pekovich in person, but uh, they're sitting No, with I have me. not. No, this is like no. the stalker syndrome because <laughs> <laughs> I, I've known of your work and I've worked on your articles for many, many years. So it's sort of like, I probably know way more about you than I probably should having never <laughs> met you, but it's fine to finally talk to you in person. Well, I, I yeah, through Instagram now, I, uh, we all know a lot about this is <laughs> daily workings of our lives. That's, That's true. true. Yeah. So, well, but it's nice to be this close to um, both of you, Matt and Mike and Tom. <laughs> you and I have numerous. <laughs> That's right. I don't see yeah, any of your. I feel uh, like I can reach them. <laughs> the only thing I'm the only thing I'm missing is seeing your Bob Dylan posters in the background. <laughs> 
Oh, you want me to turn? No, no. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I was just joking. <laughs> um, one of the things, uh, as I mentioned, uh, well, I didn't mention it, but Tim is a graduate uh, of the College of the Redwoods, has, has been making furniture since the 1980s. And uh, we have a couple of questions and some things we wanted to talk to you but, about. But I wanted to begin with a quick question kind of relating to your design aesthetic and um, just wondering, you're a, a Redwoods grad, you know, the, and I think it's called the Kronoff School now. Um, how is your design aesthetic similar to your the Kronoff philosophy that you learned and how is it different? I know you've taken some great strides kind of away from it, but there's always a taste of Kronoff in your furniture. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I would begin by saying that uh, it, uh, there's the aesthetic and there's also the design approach. And uh, as I often uh, talk to people about uh, Jim's uh, way of designing, uh, he would refer to it as composing. Wow. And it, what that means is that he, he was uh, creating as he was building and as opposed to beginning with uh, with a design that was fairly well developed prior to uh, embarking on the on the project, uh, and that's something that I really took to heart. And it's it's not always easy because uh, you have to be uh, open to things uh, mm -hmm. changing along the way, and you have to uh, build in, in such a way where where there's flexibility. Uh, as as much as possible, you try not to get yourself uh, boxed into a into a corner where you don't have a lot of options. And right. There's only one way to to achieve something, and that means a lot of mock-ups, um, uh, trying to work with things uh, full scale, uh, cutting parts oversized so that uh, you have options of the dimensions. Um, and as far as the aesthetic. Uh, uh, Jim, uh, certainly his background uh, in the Scandinavian tradition, um, uh, having uh, gone to the Malmsten School in, yeah. in Sweden, uh, I certainly look to that aesthetic in my own work. And then uh, also the uh, broad Asian aesthetic, Japanese, Chinese, Korean uh, furniture in terms of the use of materials and um, the, uh, the the value put on the material and uh, some of the the subtleties in in shaping and uh, joinery uh, how the joinery becomes often part of um, part of the aesthetic so yeah. uh, I, I would say that there are those two things the uh, composing aspect and, and then those two traditions the Scandinavian and, and the, the Asian um, uh, I think Jim and I uh, have some uh, common ground there that yeah. we cover and to, when I've, I've worked with Tim a few times over the years and, and he's always been very gracious about letting me peek under like the moving blanket that's in the corner. And, um, one time I was there, it's when I discovered that you were working on the Eisenhower project and mm -hmm. it's uh, basically where Tim is recreating original furniture for the Eisenhower house in Gettysburg. Um, and you also did some, uh, reproductions for one of the Franklin Lloyd Wright, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright houses, right? In upstate New York, was it? That's correct. In Buffalo, the um, the uh, Martin House. So how 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 uh, do you like that work as well? How different is that experience been for you versus you know following your own creativity and your own kind of journey through a piece of furniture? How what, what's that experience been like? Uh, th those experiences are, are are fascinating because it uh, immerses me in in another world, which is uh, um, furniture uh, conservation. Um, primarily, um, so I'm working with conservators uh, in these historic homes, and this is actually a, a new um, a, a new direction in historic homes. Where in the past, if there were furnishings were missing from the home, they would uh, not make an effort to replace them in any way. They might have some interpretive uh, uh, 
uh, display a photograph or something of what it what the piece may have looked like in the room. But the shift now is to actually recreate those pieces so that the museum goers have a more complete um, experience when they when they tour the house. Yeah. So in in that way, it's it's more like uh, being part of a um, a museum uh, setting. Uh, whereas uh, what I away from working on uh, these historic um, pieces, it's uh, it really takes me away from my own aesthetic mm-hmm. um, and and uh, allows me to, to really become fully immersed in, in another style. Yeah. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright, um, uh, his furnishings were so important to the overall architectural scheme. You know, they, they, sometimes the roots could not really stand without the furnishings yeah. there um, so they, they really were a part of the of the design uh, concept even though uh, they often um, were not comfortable <laughs> <for Yes. the icon. laughs> but design standpoint they were um, they were really essential to his, his vision yeah Tim you know it, we've always tried to, we've been trying to get your furniture in the magazine for a long time um, and we finally have uh, one of your pieces and, and it came about, I think I saw it on Instagram or something at, during your design process. And so in our January, February issue this year, Tim has finally got us a project and it's this beautiful round table with uh, a really innovative joint uh, for the lower stretcher assembly. And um, we're excited to see that. Can you describe the process of developing that joint? You know, I saw it, you, you kind of gave us glimpses on on Instagram and on Facebook, but um, maybe not everyone has seen your feed. But can you talk about your development of that unique joint with the disc and the kind of the pinned, uh, I guess, bridal joints? Sure. This table is uh, low to floor. Uh, it um, it uh, and. Uh, in a number of projects I've done, I've had stretchers that connect the lower parts of uh, the legs close to the floor. And uh, one thing that that does is it makes that uh, those components quite visible. Um, and so initially, uh, I was with this table, I was thinking of uh, crossing those stretchers and using a, a simple bridle joint mm-hmm. um, so that uh, the very simplest way of connecting them, really. Uh, it's clean. It, um, you know, there's no, not a lot of uh, detail about it. Um, but as I was drawing it full scale and then actually modeling uh, the piece, um, I, I created an eighth-inch scale model. Uh, and through that, um, creating that model, which was you know, rather crude, it, it was just you know, a stick of wood, roughly shaped, and uh, tucked together. Uh, I... Uh, this I could actually do this out of four pieces and could join them um, at the center and by uh, beveling them uh, or you know creating a, a 45 degree cuts on the ends of each one I could yeah. you know, nest them together and um, so I started playing around with, with that idea and and the joinery for that how to get um, tenons in there you have to do sort of a cross. Uh, tenant maybe out of plywood, and uh, that started to uh, seem more complicated than than it was worth. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden, I just started to think about how I might uh, cut a notch in the end of those pieces and have that notch uh, sort of uh, slip onto uh, one uh, one piece, one large tenon. Um, and then, as I started thinking about it that way, the the idea of uh, exposing uh, part of that so that it appeared as a disc yeah, uh, very cool. made a lot of sense yeah. uh, with a round um, round tabletop as well. It was yeah. it was a nice tie in to, to uh, just kind of yeah. that way. It's like the perfect storm: attractive and functional. Yeah, yeah, so. and and then the the pinning aspect of it. Um, uh, it, it made sense to pin the joint like that. Um, it gives it a lot more strength. But then I also realized that by uh, pinning it in a on a draw bore um, uh, technique, uh, which would actually pull the joint together, it uh, it meant that I didn't have to do a complicated clamping um, right. yeah. method to, to clamp uh, those uh, parts. You know, a clamp that would 
run the length of, uh, of the parts. Uh, so the drawbar, you know, pulls it together without having to uh, cross uh, cross plan. Cool. Great. Well, we have uh, uh, Tim does a lot of resawing of veneer um, and um, in his work. So we have a reader question for you, Tim, that uh, seems right up your alley, and it comes from a, a guy named Steve. And so he says, please discuss veneer from the perspective of making your own, both for show faces and shop-made plywood. What range of thickness is considered veneer versus lamination? I want to be able to hand plane the surface lightly. At what thickness does seasonal wood movement become an issue? That's a loaded question. It's uh, no, it's a it's a really good question because it uh, I think a lot of people wonder about that. Um, you know, when is veneer longer veneer? Um, and uh, at the College of the Redwoods, uh, we worked a lot there with uh, bandsaw veneer. There was uh, never any commercial veneer that, that entered the building there, uh, so it was all bandsaw veneer. And the rule of Thumb there was uh, three thirty seconds uh, thick. Um, if you went over that, then it was no longer veneer. Uh, so, and I think that's generally a good um, rule of thumb. Uh, however, uh, I've gone a little bit thinner with mine over time um, because I have, uh, on occasion, with certain wood species with edge joints um, in three thirty seconds veneer, had those joints open up a little bit. Um, so I began to uh, experiment by going a, a little bit thinner with mine. Uh, and uh, so I'm generally closer to a sixteenth of an inch thick yeah. um, on most of my veneer. Um, uh, I, I cut it off the, uh, at the bandsaw. It's usually closer to three thirty seconds when it comes off the saw. And yeah. then by the time I actually process it through my sander and uh, the finish thickness is, is closer to a sixteenth of an inch. Yeah. And I find with us at, at a sixteenth of an inch, you can still uh, hand plane that to, um, you know, to uh, finish off the surface. Um, you have to be careful. You got to make sure your, your hand plane is nice and sharp. So you're not um, creating tear out that then you have to go deeper to, to clean up. Um, but I, I think, uh, I, I feel most comfortable closer to a, a 16th of an inch um, thick. It still gives you plenty of material there to, to work the surface with hand tools. And for a lot of my uh, designs, uh, I will uh, kind of piece together surfaces with um, veneer tiles where I'll the edges slightly of the veneer pieces uh, and piece them together. And at a 16th of an inch thick, you can actually... Um, you can get a pretty decent bevel on the edges of those. Yeah. Um, whereas with commercial veneer, you just you, you really couldn't do that at all. So I would go with a, a 16th or a strong 16th is is um, is what I would say uh, is 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 a comfortable thickness. Right. What about uh, your approach to making your own plywood? Well, that's uh, um, you you get into a little bit different territory. There, you can go thicker um, with plies. So, for instance, if you look at uh, commercial uh, veneer for plywood, some of those plies are as thick as uh, an eighth of an inch. Um, and in some cases, even even more than that. There's some plywoods uh, um, where the plies are are, are quite quite thick, um, you know, as much as a quarter of an inch. Or and then you can get into you know actual lumber core plywood where the the, the core um, can be whatever thickness you want. I've created some of my own lumber core where, where uh, essentially a lumber core is it, um, you have your face veneer and then the, the actual lumber core um, runs in the same direction as the face veneer. Yep. The lumber core is uh, cross-laminated um, cross with, uh, with veneer that runs uh, perpendicular to, to solid wood sticks and right and uh, perpendicular to the face veneer. Uh, and lumber core veneer uh, uh, has been around for centuries, really. That's some of the, that, that's what, uh, you know, that was pre-plywood. <laughs> and lumber core was the material that veneer was uh, yeah. applied to. Uh, but in my, uh, so the one thing to, to, to know about um, any 
plywood that you're making up is the plies that are on the um, outside faces still need to be thin. Mm -hmm. um, so those uh, are typically around a sixteenth of an inch thick um, okay. because the, if you get any movement of that um, that uh, vinyl ply on the surfaces, um, that might um, telegraph through to the face veneer. So uh, whatever you're doing to create your uh, your plies uh, in, a, in homemade plywood, um, well, two things. One is you have to have an odd number. Um, you, you know, you, you're crossing the, the 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 veneers so that, but then the last two um, face veneers on the upper and lower sides um, they run contrary to the direction of your face veneer, right. um, and those are around a sixteenth of an inch thick. Great. So I hope that answers the question. I, I think uh, I think you did, and then some. <laughs> Sounds like a good article is it on does. the way. Tim will be. Uh, at Fine Woodworking Live in April in Southbridge, Mass., and we're looking forward to seeing you in person. Um, thanks for taking a few minutes to, to spend some time with us. Oh, it was my pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to Fine Woodworking Live. I, I heard a lot about the events in the past, and it sounds like a, a great a great weekend, and I know uh, Sturbridge, the area, it's a, it's a lovely place for a weekend so look forward to seeing all of you there and uh, Mike and Matt uh, maybe we'll even be able to shake hands uh, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be awesome alright Tim Thank, thanks again alright thanks, thanks. Okay. take care take care alright bye well that was a great uh, chat with Tim it's finally I'm happy that we're finally getting him in uh, the magazine with a project he's done right. a lot of great technique articles for us but that table is outstanding so be sure to check it out in the Jan Feb issue let's get to uh, our next segment, it's time for our all-time favorite technique of all time for this week. week, 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 week. All right, a favorite technique. Who's starting? I think, I think Mike wants to go first. Yeah, I'll start. <laughs> Just um, Mike going first? Yeah, since my little script says all-time favorite tool of all time for the week. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> my technique uh, for the week is a tool, actually. Um, actually, it's a pair of tools, so I guess that would make a technique, right? Two tools equals a technique. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's not accurate. That's fuzzy but. math. Isn't that funny math? Yeah, fuzzy, fuzzy, fuzzy math. math. So uh, for my errant all-time favorite tool of all time for the week is a box joint blade set, which I use all the time. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it basically it's a pair of blades that stack together similar to a dado set. The difference is the blades have teeth that are completely flat across the top. Um, the teeth are also offset from the plate in one direction, so you can stack them in one direction to get a quarter-inch cut uh, on my set, and you can stack them, flip the stack, and you get a three-eighth-inch cut. So it's really versatile. I also like to use the blades individually because it gives me, I think it's just like a skinny three-sixteenths of an inch. It's, it's curve, heavy three-sixteenths. heavy three-sixteenths, yeah. which I really like. It's a really nice dimension. Um, I use it for drawer bottoms on smaller parts where I don't want the full quarter-inch drawer bottom groove, but I also don't want just an eighth-inch or have to take multiple passes. Mm -hmm. I'll also use a single blade um, if I'm doing like a little lattice work, half-lap lattice work. Um, all my kumiko I do with an eighth-inch blade, but if I'm doing a larger scale lattice work like I did for a glass door front, that 3 ish dimension looked a lot better. Um, so that blade is really cool, and the good thing about it, the main difference between that and a dado blade is the dado blade has those little kind of ears on either side to score the grain for cross-grain cut, so it leaves not a truly flat bottom. This blade um, does a really, really good job of that. In fact, I've also used it with the workpiece held vertically uh, in conjunction with the tenoning jig, so I can cut the cheek of the, of the tenon as well as the shoulder of the tenon with the top of the blade and it leaves a, a really really clean cut um, um, where I've been using it just recently is I'm making a little case with a sliding door and so I cut grooves in the top and bottom of the case for the sliding door and that blade works perfectly for that See, the perfect technique would have been <clears throat> here's my technique the tenoning thing that was that's a good technique. Uh, yeah, this, I mean, I think I gave you like three <laughs> techniques. Oh yeah. So and um, also, so when I'm cutting the grooves, uh, whenever you're cutting grooves in stock, it's really important to keep the stock against the table so you have a consistent depth of groove. And one thing I've been moving towards, and I use it 
every time I can is it's basically, it's like a soft rubber grout float as a push pad. Um, mm-hmm. They're fantastic. Um, the one I have has a fancy wooden handle that was made for me by um, Jerry Forshe from Mark Adams, who was helping me out there one year and makes these. But, I mean, these things grip amazingly. I use them for any sheet goods, any rips, you know, wider than five or six inches where I can get my pad on there. And especially something like this for non-through cuts to really keep the workpiece on the table. Yeah. I also use them at my jointer. They're fantastic for that. Yeah, I used my. I used to have one of those, and I used it for my jointer. And, and um, but my my cat puked on it, and I didn't want to reuse it. Again. <laughs> well, the so, thing is, but it, it, the grip is incredible. Yeah, so it's really much better than the store bought rubberized push stick push pads. Oh, those are get. horrible, and they're expensive. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. These are grout floats. The ones that Bob uses at Connecticut Valley, um, they're red. It's a soft rubber. Don't get the hard black with the really smooth bottom. The uh, there's a red rubber grout floats where it looks kind of more spongy. Those yeah. things grip amazingly. They're really cheap, and you can get them at a home center as opposed to having to order them from a woodworking catalog yeah. or something. Yeah, there's one stuck to your back right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's floating. Uh, all right. That's why he's so smooth. You know, what? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, work with me here. So, Matt, you want to go next? <laughs> Matt goes next. Somebody. I need to Somebody. calm down over here. All right. So, my technique uh, this week is not a tool. It's a technique. Um, and it's something uh, that I learned. I have to admit, I, I'm embarrassed a bit to admit how I learned this because you would think that having grown up with a father who's a contractor – and having been in making furniture for many, many years before I sort of discovered on my own by looking at doors in the house, just like n- noticing the doors in the house, that the way to get a really nice reveal on the pull side of the door is to bevel that style so that it's a little bit narrower at the back than it is at the front. And you do that because what that does is it allows the back corner of that style to clear the case. Yeah. But if you were just to make that all straight and just and, and plane it down straight until it cleared, there would be a really big gap on that side. So if you bevel it, it allows that back corner to clear. And then when it's closed, the gap between the style and the cabinet is nice and tight. So I learned that through observation, but I should have known it long before because it's a technique that's been around forever, uh, and, but I just never knew it. Um, and in the past, I'd always done this sort of freehand, mm-hmm. um, which with larger stuff, you sort of have to. But uh, with the, I'm currently making a small uh, jewelry cabinet that has a cab, part of it is a cabinet with a door. And I wanted to bevel it, and I thought a good way to do that and control it would be to take an old piece of Kumiko, which was a sixteenth of an inch thick. I put it on uh, underneath the door on my shooting board and then just shot that style until that angle was uh, on the on the uh, style and it was perfect. Um, so, uh, that's my technique is to, I guess my technique is not just to bevel that style, but if you can put it on some type of shooting board, uh, and prop it up a little bit so that you get a nice, straight, clean bevel. So your technique is really a stick. It is a stick. <laughs> no, his tool is a stick. My tool is a stick. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've done that as well. Usually I, like you said, on bigger stuff, I do it by hand with a block plane, and I just do sort of a shallow bevel on that back corner. It never extends the full width of mm-hmm. that um, of that door s- side, but that's really cool, especially for your stuff, which is like really clean and crisp. Having a weird half shallow bevel would be strange, but having mm-hmm. a really accurate full sort of slanted edge is very, very cool. Yeah, that's it's new. really yeah. the... The I was going to take a photograph with like a square or something on it to show mm-hmm. you how much it's out of square, but it's it's so minuscule that you can barely see it. So I I didn't do that. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so that won't work on, on bigger stuff. It's too bad you couldn't do something like tilt the table saw blade just a little and rip that edge. <laughs> 
could, but a table saw is not really a. I don't know. I finishing tool. I wouldn't do it on a small piece like that. No, I mean I'd be nervous fitting a door on a table saw. <laughs> oh, I do that all the time. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. No. Not me. Okay. All right. That's yeah. my technique, Tom. Should, I should have done that for my uh, solid wood door. <laughs> it, binds, it binds a little bit in the uh, in the summer. Well, you can still go back and do it. That's I can. Just, I can just take it off the hinge and give it a couple no, swipes. Just, just get a circus saw and do it with a small <laughs> cabinet. <laughs> just whack get, it with a get, with a brick. Get my track saw. <laughs> just do it with a chainsaw. Evidently, that's okay. <laughs> get my belt. My belt's in. That's the well, sign of a really good technique is when the other two people just get kind of quiet and go. Oh yeah. Oh. Right. Yeah. That door. Okay. That door wouldn't hit if I did that. <laughs> Well, uh, I kind of have my, 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 I have to say my technique, I'm sort of embarrassed by it because it's not yet fully developed, but, um, part of, part of my process was uh, I'm reading the layouts for the issue that's going out the door and, um, our workshop tip winner was a a gentleman, I I don't recall his name. Um, he, he's presenting a way to cut dovetails on the bandsaw, both the, the tails and the pins. Yeah. And his method involved some really clever Dan jits. Sweeney. Dan Sweeney. Thanks, Ben. <clears throat> but I um I don't like making jigs. <laughs> so I was trying to figure out, I was inspired. I have some projects coming up that I'm going to have to cut a lot of dovetails for. And so I thought, you know, he's got some really cool angle jigs, but you know, I've got a bevel gauge. Um, I can easily do what he's doing using my bevel gauge to cut the to cut the tails. Oh. So I set it up this way. And I discovered the first thing I discovered that when I do this again, um, it got running late last night when I was trying to fix everything. But I realized I now have an excuse finally to get rid of that uh, ruler on the front of my bandsaw table, which I never use anyway, because I couldn't get my bevel gauge to align perfectly. It was a little bit uh, awkward okay, cutting right. the cutting the tail. But basically, the gauge I set it to the angle of my dovetail. And align the lined it on the edge of the the table saw, uh, t- the bandsaw rather, and cut the tails that way, you know, from both sides. So you're using the blade of the, blade of the bevel gauge, sort as of a, as a fence as a to yep. run the stock mm-hmm. against. Exactly. That's really cool. Exactly. So, um, I mean, I have a very large bevel gauge, as you can see. But the other thing that Dan did that was really clever was he made an angled platform to cut the tails. And what you could do is cut. You know, switch the platform to both sides of the blades to to cut the, the different angles. Mm-hmm. Um, before I dove into this, I was thinking, oh, I've got a my bandsaw table tilts. Why can't I do that? And then I realized pretty quickly that oh, I've got to be able to tilt it both, both ways. ways. So my yeah. first experiment failed. But my, a lot of bandsaws will tilt at least ten degrees. Not mine. Not, not mine, the other no. way. Not oh, the, the other way. way. Mine, yes. mine does yeah. five. I think. That's uh, yeah. yeah, I uh, couldn't. I couldn't go that far. So what I realized, okay. Am I stuck? And I, I sat there and I and I stared and I stared and I realized, well, all I need to do is get the angle. So what I decided to do at first was to make basically a, uh, like a shim to just get that workpiece at the right angle. And I happened to have some uh, quarter-inch Luan plywood around, and I cut a strip off of that. And the angle actually worked out perfectly for, for the, the angle of the pins that I was making. And so I was able to clamp that down. And, you know, for both sides, the fir- I did one clamping on one side of the blade for the first angled cuts for the pins, switched it to the other side and did the other angles. And then I did some rough clearing out with um, the bandsaw blade to get down to the baseline. And I pulled it off the saw. And my first try went together fairly well. I did, I have it here. And I did make one cut on the wrong side of the line on the pins, but you know, there's no. I did no pairing on this at all, as you can see, because of the gaps. But um, <laughs> but it went together really well. So cool. now I know that my at least my theory works, and now I just to need to better refine my technique to make it clean and surefire. So I'm excited about it. Very you should cool. make some jigs to do those two steps. Well, I'm sort of making jigs. <laughs> I have to store jigs. That's my big my big issue. But you know, if I had these strips that that could work, I think uh, for tails, I often cut my tails at the bandsaw uh, when I have a lot to do. And I, I taking something from an article by Stephen Hammer, which I did the photography for. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. It's just uh, he just I just have a piece of eighth inch MDF that has that wedge that matches the slope of the tail, and down at the end there's a little stop. And you just use that, and you just you know flip. It actually you makes it. it makes it really easy to do symmetrical uh, 
uh, tails. But anyways, yeah, I mean, cool. it still requires the handwork, you know, at the mm-hmm. base to to, to flush yes. it up. But um, the fact that I get it fit <laughs> right there, and all I have to do is kind of clean out the corners. That's a, gives me kind of a leg up on what I have to build. Very so. cool. I'm excited. Or you could do that at the table saw. I could. <laughs> well, one of the pieces I have to Just, make is, well, that I want to make is a is a tall cupboard, like a probably the Enfield style cupboard, and I want to dovetail the the top, and I can't really do that on the table saw. I'm, I was just kidding. So, <laughs> although it'd be fun to photograph. <laughs> um, I was joking. I did a tall case piece on the table saw once. My Enfield cupboard. I did. You those. did that on the. I did t- those on the table saw. I thought you routed those. I routed out the cl- the pins in between the pins. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But I cut the tails on the table saw. I think. Right. I don't recall. I'm pretty sure. Hmm. It wasn't in the article. All right. Well, let's get to uh, our final question. And this one comes from Ron. And Ron says, I'm making the Steve Lotta Spice Box from issue 196. And I'm concerned about the crown and the base molding. As the case expands and contracts with seasonal movement, won't gaps eventually show between the molding and case, or could the molding crack? Parts of the molding glow-up will be cross-grain. I'm at the point where it's time to attach the molding, but I'm afraid I'm missing something. Any advice you can offer would be great. And Ben had talked to Steve yesterday about this issue. Do you want to uh, chime in and relay sure. the answer? Well, um, I don't know. Steve used the term pick your poison frequently in the conversation. But uh, I think what it comes down to is he has always glued it on, and in 25 years, he's never had an issue. And that's probably got a lot to do with the depth of the case only being nine inches. So there's not that much room for it to become an issue. If it was a 20-inch deep case, he would treat it differently. He would glue the front and nail the back and use biscuits to keep everything aligned laterally. Um, but in, in his words, you know, I glue it on. If 25 years later it falls off, I glue it on again. If 25 <laughs> years after that it falls off, I'm dead. It's not my problem. <laughs> Excellent. But, but um, and in pre-production we had talked about, uh, like Bexford uses the, dovetail method and he said on a on a on a short case like that on a case that isn't that deep he's found that it's 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 difficult to get those tight did you mention the type of glue he uses on that that i should have asked about i would assume hide he uses hide glue a lot i think or primarily right yeah i I, but hide glue is very rigid glue line though no yeah i was gonna say if he used like a yellow glue or something with a little squishier glue line uses silly putty (laughs) which <laughs> has a very flexible glue line. I use yak saliva. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> that escalated quickly. <laughs> We're de-escalating. Yeah, you went right over, right over fish glue to yak saliva. Yeah. <laughs> Live from Nepal. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll shoot him an email and put it in the show notes. Cool. Okay. All, right. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap this bad boy up. Uh, I think we want to do some recommendations. Who wants to hit that first? Matt? No. Mike? (laughs) (laughs) I did not know we were going to do recommendations. It's a thing. Now we're doing it every time now. Okay. All right. We're supposed to. All right. I'll I'll, I'll have one by the time it gets around to me. Well, take a minute right now and think of one. one. I've I've got one. I can go first. You go first. Um, Hey, if you get a chance, check out the Vietnam series by Ken Burns on PBS. It's a great uh, series. I think it's 12 or 13 episodes, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. But it's great because what I love about it is that you get both sides of the story. He talks to a lot of Vietnamese soldiers and citizens as well as the American soldiers and citizens. So you get really a, a good insight to both sides. Cool. I have one. Awesome. I just thought of this. Um, I've been putting my yellow glue not in like the big container. I don't know if you've noticed this. I use the the type of glue where it's got the cap that kind of pulls up a little bit to squeeze out the glue and then you push it back down to lock it. And it seems like over the last couple of years, I don't know if the plastic formulation of the cap has changed or the glue formulation has changed, but they're really hard yes. to open. They get yes. really, really stuck. I just had Maybe that. you've just gotten weak. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> So what I've been doing is um, 
I've been buying like the smaller, clear, round, sort of squishy plastic bottles with the pointy top and the red cap on top. I just get a couple of those things. I've been using those. Actually, I got them to put shellac in for, you know, putting squirting on a shellac pad. And I said, I'm sticking glue in one. And it worked like really, really well. And so I had just a, a really small opening in it to squeeze out a thin glue line. But then I was doing a glue up. It was too slow. So I, I cut it for a bigger opening so I could really squish the glue out. But then when I went back to a space where I needed a thin glue line, that didn't work. So now I have two glue bottles, one with a thin opening, one with a wider opening. And uh, the red caps come off much easier, but try not to lose those. I'm surprised you didn't colorize the caps to differentiate which bottle you were grabbing. Oh, yes. There's another tip. Yeah, there you go. So I recommend <laughs> a couple of different things. Uh, uh, mine's glue related too. Cool. Uh, I recommend buying small bottles of glue, hmm. not buying big bottles. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like how small? Like the round one, or like the oblong, like the little, like the ones that Taipan gave away at Fine Wood. Like a half ounce, ounce at a time. <laughs> half ounce. <laughs> I mean, think of all the plastic. No, uh, you know, like four ounces at a time or something. I know. F- Maybe that works well for me because I make small things. But that'll last you like three years, <laughs> right? That'll last me a long time. As long as you get the cap open, because I'm still using that bottle of hide glue that I was using before. <laughs> the one that you've declared as no longer good. Yeah, I just keep using. It. No, I, okay. I threw that out a long, long time ago. I gave it to Barry, our newest editor. He's been using it to make his dining table. Yeah, that cow's calf is already an adult. <laughs> yeah. That's mine. Buy a small bottle of Ben just got that. (laughs) No, I got it before, but I I didn't. Yeah. All right. Let's let's wrap it up. That's all for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Head over to the tauntonstore.com to save 20% on your order with the code GIFT20. That's G-I-F-T-2-0. And please spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. Shop Talk Live is dependent on your questions, so make sure to send them in to shoptalk at taunton.com. If you're watching on YouTube, please click that thumbs up button. And finally, keep yeah, finally, you can keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook. And look for all of us on Instagram as well. Thanks for listening and have fun in the shop and be safe. And beware the excellent. <laughs> So I was speaking of saliva. I was just shooting an article with Tim Rousseau, and (laughs) (laughs) he, like, he is a shooting board. And when he puts down the the fence for forty five, he spits on the bottom of it, and then that helps it stay in place while he clamps it.